Good afternoon. It is a joy and a blessing to be here today. Uh, always encouraged to, to be together with our spiritual family, to have this time that we're able to praise God together and, and to open up His Word. Uh, and it truly is a blessing that God has revealed Himself to us through the Scriptures. That's where we want our focus to be today as, as it should be every day. Two weeks ago, we talked about why are Christians so divided uh, and talked about the biblical pattern for unity. And we talked about how really whenever there is division, it boils down to one of two problems. Either the principles of unity are lacking or the attitudes of peace are lacking. Uh, either we are failing to follow the, the guidance of the one spirit, submit to the authority of the one Lord properly, or we are failing to reflect the attitude of humility, of forbearance, uh, of gentleness and love that make for peace. Uh, either we are not abiding in the teaching of Christ or we are not reflecting the character of Christ. But cognitively understanding those problems and those principles, uh, these principles of unity, these attitudes of peace, and understanding how to apply them are two very different things. Uh, we, we can state those things very simply and very clearly, but, but learning how to deal with one another and deal with differences and, and differences in understanding is something that takes a lot of work. And it's something that, that's not always as simple and easy as we might like for it to be. Because sometimes as we pursue peace, with others, we may be tempted to compromise uh, the principles of truth. Or sometimes as we seek to take a firm stand for the truth, we may end up violating the attitudes of peace as we deal with other people. And so it can be very difficult sometimes to balance those two things, um, to allow the two goals of, of truth and of peace uh, to guide us properly to stand both for truth and for peace. Did you know that Christian unity was perhaps one of the most central principles of the Restoration Movement? Uh, back in the late 1700s and 1800s, men like Alexander Campbell and Barton W. Stone um, were basically fed up with the splintering of denominational churches, of all the different creeds and denominational titles and, and uh, governing bodies that were dividing people. And so their, their primary call was unity in God's word. Let's get past all of these barriers that we're setting up. Let's tear them down. Let's get back to God's word and let's be unified. However, about a hundred years after that, the Restoration Movement had already split into uh, primarily three branches that we might know today as Churches of Christ, the Christian Church, and the Disciples of Christ. And, and in fact, probably splintered much more than that in years to come. Uh, and today, some of those who might seek to identify themselves most closely with the Restoration Movement, uh, Restoration Warriors, might have a reputation uh, in some circles for being some of the most divisive and dogmatic individuals. And yet, that's not how that whole movement started. Now, I, I'm not going to talk a whole lot about restoration history. I, I, I'm not uh, a big proponent of restoration 
history. I have no uh, allegiance to any religious movement outside of New Testament Christianity, no uh, allegiance to any religious leader outside of Christ. But I think the value of considering uh, what occurred during that movement and, and since then is in evaluating why some of those divisions took place and evaluating um, whether some of those divisions might have been warranted or unwarranted, where the fault lies. And, and the basic question that I want us to consider today is when must doctrine divide us? We, we've talked about the ideal of unity within the scriptures, uh, but there, as we will see in, here in a moment, are, are going to be times that we're going to have to separate ourselves from error separated ourselves from sin uh, to those who are not in fellowship with God. Now, the religious world today, uh, among some circles, like to divide doctrines into primary or core doctrines that have to relate with our fellowship with God, that determine whether someone is a Christian or not a Christian. And then secondary doctrines, which don't affect our fellowship with God, but may affect our fellowship with other Christians. And then third order doctrines are tertiary doctrines, which really should not affect our fellowship at all. Um, the Bible doesn't talk about it in that way. Uh, and while I, I think it is certainly true that there are some things that we will have to divide on and some things that we should not divide on, I, I think we need to be very careful about setting up our own system of of doctrines that are, are more important and doctrines that are less important. And, and these um, you know, are uh, doctrines that are primary and these are really not uh, that core or important. But what the Bible does talk about, and what I want us to focus on today, is that there are times where doctrinal differences should divide us. And there are times where it should not. What does the Bible say about that? We're, we're not going to see primary, secondary, and tertiary doctrine, but we will see what the Bible does have to say about when our differences should not divide us and when, unfortunately, they must. And I want to start off where we left off uh, in our lesson two weeks ago, that the ideal is perfect unity, that God's design for his church is a perfect union. Here, the passage that we just read in John 17, as Jesus, here, the, the night that he is betrayed, before he is crucified, um, as he prays, the very last thing that he prays for is for you and for me, to, for those who would believe on him through the apostles' words. And as we already read here in verse 20, he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. This is our standard of unity. This is the ideal of unity that Jesus expresses, that we be one, and he defines that unity as, first of all, unity in him and in the Father, unity in the teaching of Christ, unity in a common fellowship with God. So the unity that Jesus describes here is not a unity at any price. 
It's not that we can go out and be unified with the atheist uh, and just compromise our belief in order to, to have peace and unity with them and their beliefs. No, it's unity in Jesus and in God. But also, as we talked about last time in verse 22, unity as Jesus in the Father. Even as we are one, that they may also be one. Uh, a perfect unity in spirit and in teaching. And we asked the question before, do, do Jesus and the Father simply agree to disagree? Does Jesus say, well, Father, I know you feel this way about it, and you have this idea on what, what you want people to be doing, but I, I have this idea, and so we'll just uh, agree to disagree on that. No big deal. Well, of course not. And so the ideal of unity, the unity that Jesus prays for, is uh, a, a complete unity. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10 describes it this way. Paul exhorts them, saying, Brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I exhort you that you all agree, some versions say, speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Our goal, the ideal here, is not that we simply agree to disagree, but that we be wholly united in what we teach and what we practice. Coming to a common conclusion, the same mind, the same judgment on matters of God's will, matters of what is pleasing and displeasing to him. Now, this doesn't mean that we're all going to be robots, you know, just speaking the same thing. Certainly, we are all going to have different strengths and weaknesses. We're all going to have different roles within the body, different backgrounds, and different personal perspectives to a certain extent. But when it comes to our understanding of God's will, of what he desires of us, what is right and what is wrong, what is within his will and what is outside of his will, we need to strive for a perfect unity. Because God's will is not divided. Truth is not divided. And if we believe two conflicting things about what God desires of us, uh, both cannot be true at the same time. And so we need to always strive for a common understanding of God's will. Uh, that's the type of unity that we see described for us in the scriptures. Uh, and so we cannot simply resign to division. We need to continually strive for unity as the Father and the Son are unified. But having stated that, we recognize that that is an ideal which we are always going to be growing towards. That, that is not an ideal that we are ever going to fully realize here in this life. Uh, because individually and collectively, we are all continually growing in our understanding of God and his will. Philippians chapter 3, if you'd like to turn over there, we see Paul describing his own personal growth. In verse 12, Paul writes, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which uh, also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Now, I think we would generally see Paul to be a, a fairly mature Christian, right? And yet, what does Paul say about his own spiritual growth? He says, I, I haven't arrived. It's not that I've attained it already. I, I'm continually reaching for it. I have a lot more growing to do. Down in verse 15, notice what he says. He says, let us therefore, as many as are perfect or mature, have this attitude. And if anything else, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. 
What, what Paul is saying here, as many of us as are mature are going to recognize, are going to have this attitude that we have a lot more maturing to do, that we have a lot more growing to do. No individual in this life is ever going to reach a point where, where they've just arrived. And I don't need to study anymore. I, I don't need to continue to uh, question my own understanding of God's will. I've got it all figured out. I take all the right positions uh, and everything that, that I'm, I'm doing is what God desires for me to do. We, we recognize that we're going to have to continually grow to challenge our own understanding uh, of God's word and God's will. Uh, and that's going to be true of us both individually and as a group. So in verse 16, what does Paul say? He says, however, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Yes, we recognize we're, we're never going to arrive. But in the meantime, we need to live according to our current understanding, according to our convictions. Uh, and even if you personally reached a point in your life where you had everything figured out, even if that was possible, uh, does that mean that the church is ever going to reach this ideal of unity here in, in this world? Well, no, there's going to be new converts. There, there are going to be uh, new people coming in, new people having to, to mature and to grow. Uh, so even if it was possible for you individually, it would not be possible for all of God's people. And so what we have here is this struggle between the ideal that we cannot surrender. We can't just resign to division and, and say that, well, it's okay, it's not that big a deal. Well, no, when it comes to matters of God's will, of what's pleasing and displeasing to him, that, that is a big deal. We can't surrender that, and yet we have to deal with the reality that we are always going to be growing towards that. So how do we deal with that? How do we hold to that ideal and yet learn to work together through our differences? And as we talked about last week, it's important that we deal with these differences with humility, with patience, with forbearance, and with love. There in Ephesians 4 that we focused on uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about how we are to strive to maintain that unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And he describes the attitude there in verse 2 as being one that is with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. As we deal with our differences, we need to reflect the character of Christ, the right attitude. Um, maintaining unity is not simply about making sure that you come to all the right doctrinal conclusions. Uh, maintaining unity to, to a large extent is more about making sure that we have the right attitude as we deal with our differences and work towards a common understanding. We have to have humility recognizing that I am not always right and that I need to question my own understanding of God's word and change my convictions at times. Uh, I need to have gentleness and patience and forbearance, even if I am right and you're wrong. I need to be willing to uh, deal with that in a gentle way uh, and in a constructive rather than a destructive way and forbearance, bearing with others. I think the best passage uh, to, to emphasize this point, we touched on it briefly last uh last lesson, but I, I want to focus on it a little bit more, is Romans 14. So if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles over there, and I'll give you fair warning, we're going to keep our Bibles open to Romans 14 for a little while. Romans 14 really uh, addresses this issue of 
maintaining peace as we seek to grow together. And, and the issue going on in Romans 14 is that here you have Jewish Christians uh, who have uh, come from uh, a background of following the Mosaic Law, and yet now they have committed their lives to Christ, and they feel that they need to continue to keep certain aspects of the Mosaic Law, specifically uh, in Romans 14, um, some of the Mosaic food laws that they felt they needed to continue to observe even as Christians. And not only did they feel that this was binding upon them personally, they felt that this was binding upon everyone, even these Gentile converts who didn't come from that background. They felt they should not be eating um, those uh, meats in violation of, of these food laws. And here in this passage, these Jewish Christians who felt that the Mosaic food laws were still binding are described as the weak brethren. Uh, and those who felt that they could eat are described, uh, these Gentile converts are described as the strong. What does God say to them? Look, look with me just at the first five verses of Romans chapter 14. Paul writes, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he, he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. So here in this situation, we're dealing with two separate groups of people who are fully convinced in their own mind. One is fully convinced that they need to continue to follow these uh, aspects of the old law. The other is, is fully convinced that they aren't bound by those things. How are they to deal with this? Well, first of all, what, what is said to the strong brother, the one who recognizes that he does have this liberty to eat? In verse 1, he's told, Now accept the one who is weak in the faith, and not, uh, do not pass judgments on his opinion. He's not to automatically uh, reject him or, or to sever ties with him uh, just because he has this opposing conviction. And verse 3 says, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And so he's not to, to look down upon or, or judge him in that way. But even beyond that, if we look later on in verse 20 and 21, we're told that he's not to influence him to stumble in this way. Verse 20 and 21, we read, Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. Here, even though he recognizes he has this liberty, uh, he's willing to, to set that liberty aside for the good of his brother. Uh, that he might not cause the other to stumble. And so he's not to pass judgment on him, he's to accept him, and he is not to do anything unnecessarily to cause him to violate his convictions or, or to wound his conscience to make him to stumble. But does that mean that this strong brother is to just kind of leave the weak brother to his weakness? Is he 
simply to allow him to continue with his wrong conclusions? Uh, well, if we look in chapter 15, verse 1 and 2, I think we see the ultimate goal here is not that we just agree to disagree on this. The ultimate goal is that we grow together in this. Look in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 15. He says, Now we who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. What's the goal here? That, that weak brother might grow. Uh, that we all together might grow, that we might be edified, that we might be built up to further understand what it is that God truly desires of us. And how do we accomplish that? Do we accomplish that by passing judgment upon him, by uh, rejecting him, by, by severing ties with him? Well, no, you're not going to accomplish it that way. You're going to have to have the forbearance and the patience to help that individual grow, uh, even to the point of, of suspending some of your own liberty that you might not cause offense. What about the weak brother? What is the weak brother told in this passage? And remember for a moment, the weak brother doesn't identify himself as a weak brother. Uh, he's not walking around uh, labeling himself in that way. And yet Paul in this passage uh, makes it very clear later on in the passage that there is one who is correct in this, who is strong in this, and there is one uh, who, who is incorrect in his understanding. But in verse 3, the weak brother is told, it says, uh, first to the strong brother, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. But then he says, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Both of them are ultimately told the same thing. The strong brother is not to judge or condemn or reject the weak brother, and the weak brother is not to judge or condemn the strong brother either. Why? What is Paul's argument? In verse 4, Paul doesn't say, okay, don't condemn him because this isn't actually wrong. Because he's right, you're wrong, he does have this liberty. That's not Paul's argument. Now, later on, once we get to verse 14, he's finally going to explain that. But here in verse 4, what is his argument? He says, God has accepted him at the end of verse 3, verse 4. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Paul's argument uh, is that God is the judge. Not you. And he's going to stand or fall before the Lord, even if this is sinful. Even if this is wrong, he's going to stand or fall before God. And God, in his grace and in his mercy, is able to make him stand. Um, God, in his grace, is able to, to overlook his immaturity, to cleanse him of his ignorant sin. Uh, and so I, I think the primary argument here uh, is that God is the judge here, and we need to leave that position to him. The weak brother who believes his conclusion is correct, and he is the strong one, must exercise the same forbearance and patience in trying to help the brother he views as the weak to grow. And if God is merciful to his immaturity, then I must be merciful to his immaturity as well. I think the, the overall conclusion of Romans 14 is best seen in verse 19. If you look with me there, Romans 14, verse 19. 
It says, so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. We're seeking to build up one another. We're seeking to help each other grow, to better understand what it is that God desires of us. Uh, and yet, in the process, we are seeking to maintain peace. If I, because I believe what you're doing is wrong, immediately sever ties with you and uh, reject you, um, then there is no opportunity for growth there. There's no opportunity to build one another up. And so the general principle of Romans 14 is that we need to have a forbearance with one another, even where we uh, are fully convinced in our own mind that the other is in error, um, that we might seek to build up. If we pass judgment, condemn, withdraw, divide the minute someone disagrees with what we believe God desires of us, we have no opportunity to help each other grow, no opportunity for you to help me grow. Maybe I'm the weak brother. Maybe I think I'm the strong brother and I'm not. Uh, I think that's the general principle of Romans 14. And I think the, the error that we run into with Romans 14 is not so much that we try to apply it too broadly. I, I think we try to apply it incorrectly. Uh, it's not that Romans 14 only applies to a, a very small group of, of issues. The principles of Romans 14, that I need to be forbearing with my brother even if he is wrong, is a principle that applies across the board. Now, what we're going to see with the rest of our lesson is there are other passages that, that limit that. That doesn't mean that if, if my brother is living in open adultery, uh, you know, well, I need to be forbearing with him. I, 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 can't, uh, I need to accept him. Uh, well, no, there, there are going to be some cases very clearly throughout the rest of the scripture that, that we are going to have to divide. Um, that we are going to have to separate ourselves from them. Th this doesn't mean that on whatever these, these differences may be, that my brother's conclusions are correct. This doesn't mean that truth is relative. It doesn't mean that these matters are unimportant. It doesn't mean that it's okay that we just agree to disagree and move on, or that I resign to let my brother continue in some unscriptural or even sinful uh, Unscriptural and sinful, I, I think, should be fairly synonymous. Uh, sinful practice. It does mean that I am humble, that I am patient, that I am forbearing, so that we can maintain peace while I help you grow or you help me grow. And I come to realize that I'm the one who is wrong here. Uh, and so with that understanding of how we need to deal with one another, along these differences, the, the question still remains, when must doctrine divide us? Um, and I don't think we're going to find that answer in Romans 14. I, I think other passages are now going to limit the principle of Romans 14. Um, so we do see in the scriptures there are some areas uh, in which division must occur. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18 and 19 Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. What he's saying here is that there has to be division here uh, if, if those who are approved are going to stay approved. Here that there is an error that, that needs to be separated 
from. There are times which uh, error cannot be tolerated, where division is necessary, that we cannot compromise the truth to have fellowship with something that is sinful. Re Revelation chapter 2 and verse 20, we see uh, Jesus speaking to the church in Thyatira, says, but I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Now, wait a second, I thought tolerance was something that we were encouraged to do in Ephesians chapter 4, that we were supposed to be forbearing. Well, that's true, but there comes a point where we can no longer tolerate sin, where we can't tolerate error. And so while we seek to be tolerant with one another and seeking to help each other grow and work through these things together, there is a point at which maintaining peace is going to be for the building up of the brethren, but there's a point where maintaining peace is ultimately going to tear down the brethren. When tolerating something that is doing great damage to souls uh, is contrary to what God would desire of us. So when must divisions take place? I want to look at just briefly with the time we have remaining at four answers to that question. One, when there is a divisive spirit. Turn with me to Titus chapter 3. Here, Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 9. We read, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Here is somebody that we're not told to accept. We're to, we're to accept the weak brother, but here he says, reject a factious man after the first and second admonition. Um, and this may be really on any doctrinal issue. Uh, in, in Romans 16, verse 17, we're told to, to mark or note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and turn away from them. So there may be sometimes that somebody is divisive about something uh, that is genuine error. But here in Titus 3, notice some of these things he's talking about are foolish controversies in verse 9. Um, things that are unprofitable and worthless. Here this is ultimately more of an issue of attitude than it is an, uh, an issue of doctrine. Uh, it doesn't matter what the issue is. If, if I'm being divisive and factious about who the author of Hebrews is or, or what color the, the flooring is going to be, uh, if I'm being factious, I'm told that the brethren are to reject me after the first and second admonition. And so, regardless of what the doctrinal issue is, if I have a divisive spirit, um, then the church needs to separate from that divisive spirit that it might not do further damage. And that really gets us to the second point, is that when some error is doing damage to the faith of others, then division needs to take place. Turn to, to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 16. Here Paul tells Timothy, But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. How were Hymenaeus and Philetus to be treated? Here they, they were to be uh, avoided. Um, there was a separation that had to occur here. He refers to their teaching as gangrene. Well, what's gangrene? My, my younger brother, who's adopted 
from Russia, as some of you may know, only has one arm because when he was an infant, uh, he received a, a shot from an infected needle and that developed gangrene, an, an infection that not only threatened his arm, but threatened the rest of his body. And it was going to, uh, unchecked, it would spread and it would threaten his entire life. And so what needed to take place there? Well, because of the danger that the body was in, because of the danger of that spreading and influencing the faith of others, upsetting the faith of others, uh, in our spiritual case here, uh, an amputation had to occur. Now, th think about it in this way, though. Uh, if, if you wound your hand, what, what is your first reaction? Is your first reaction, this needs to be cut off? Well, no, of course not. If you wound your hand, your first reaction, let's bandage this up. Let's fix this. Let's heal this. But what if the wound will not be healed? What if the wound is now threatening the rest of the body? Well, then a division has to take place. And that ultimately is this principle here, is that when my brother is in some error, when my brother is in some sin, uh, whatever it may be, my first reaction is not, you hold that position, we got to cut that off. No, my first reaction is, let's deal with that. Let's maintain peace as long as we can and, and help each other grow in this so that this wound may be healed. And yet, when it becomes a threat to the rest of the body, uh, the Bible is very clear that we need to take action. Galatians chapter 5, verse 7 through 10, talks again about Jewish Christians who were causing uh, a problem in the body of Christ. Uh, by wanting to bind circumcision, in this case, upon Gentile converts. And the problem is very similar to Romans 14, in a way. Um, just like the Jews there thought that they needed to continue to follow the food laws of the old law, here the Jews thought that they needed to continue to practice circumcision. But when they were unwilling to conduct themselves in the way that Romans 14 would command them to. And when they, as Galatians 5 describes it, were hindering the faith of others, were disturbing others by trying to bind this upon them, Paul describes that as a little leaven that's going to leaven the whole lump. And what needs to be done there? Well, the leaven needs to be purged out. Uh, if it's just some personal conviction that they have, that, that they need to be circumcised, or some personal conviction that, that they should not eat that meat, well then let's follow the principles of Romans 14. Yes, they may be wrong in that, that's not required, um, but there is no reason to cut off that member of the body. And yet, if they are then using that to, to then bind it upon others, to, to damage others within the body, then action needs to occur. And so the solution is not just to draw dividing lines every time our personal convictions differ. If that was the case, we'd all be worshiping by ourselves in our homes. That's not what God desires. And yet, when the, the teaching of others is threatening the flock, threatening the body in some way, guiding them away from, from what I believe to be God's will, uh, then it needs to be treated in a different way. And thirdly, when willful or rebellious sin is involved, it cannot be tolerated. 1 Corinthians 5 gives a very clear example of this. When uh, one who 
was among the, the Corinthians who had committed adultery with his father's wife. We see that such a case of clear immorality cannot be tolerated, and if it is, it will spread like leaven. Uh, and so he tells them to deliver such a one unto Satan, clean out the old leaven, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And Matthew 18 gives us a pattern for how to do that. It's, it's still not that we at you know, a pin drop are ready to cut off our arm. The, the approach is still, according to Matthew 18, I'm going to go to that individual between me and him alone. I'm going to confront him with his sin. And if he's unwilling to change, if he's unwilling to hear me, then I'm going to bring one or two others. And if he's unwilling to hear them, then I'm going to bring it to the church. And if he's unwilling to even hear the church, then my responsibility is to assign him to the realm of the heathen and the tax collector. When willful and rebellious and when confronted with God's word, when, when unwilling to, to change, uh, there has to be a division. We have to remove the wicked man from among ourselves in order to protect the Lord's body, the Lord's flock. But finally, and uh, I, I feel bad giving this so little time because I think there uh, is a lot more that could be discussed in regard to this last point. But when it is clear from the scriptures that someone is not in fellowship with God, then I cannot be in fellowship with them. Consider 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3. Here we read, what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Where does our fellowship with our brethren come from? Well, we are brethren, we are brothers and sisters of Christ, because we are fellow children of a common father. Because we are a fellow sheep under a common shepherd. Ultimately, our fellowship with one another is an extension of our common fellowship with God. Therefore, if somebody is not in fellowship with God, and I, I clearly see from the scriptures they are not in fellowship with God, who am I to extend my fellowship towards that individual? Um, I need to make sure that uh, as, as best I am able, uh, that I, I do not extend fellowship to those that I know God and his word is not extending fellowship towards. That means those who have not uh, responded to the gospel, those who have not been baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, um, cannot, I, I cannot have genuine fellowship with them, ex accept them into uh, a local body. Uh, what, what about those who just believe that Jesus was a good moral teacher? Can I have fellowship with them, be in uh, a common spiritual family with them? Well, no, certainly we, we need to recognize here that this is not just my weak brother. This is not my brother. Um, and God has given us a certain responsibility to make some of those judgments. Um, specifically in Acts 20, the elders there were told to watch out for the flock, that they wouldn't let in those who, who would... Um, uh, do damage to the flock. We're going to have to make some judgments about that at times. Second John, verse 9 and 10, if you'd like to turn there, talk to us about fellowship with God. It says in verse 9, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. 
The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. Here, we're told that our fellowship with God is dependent on us abiding within his teaching. I don't think that means that, uh, you know, as long as we have everything figured out, and as long as we are correct doctrinally on every matter of Christ's teaching, then we're in fellowship with God. I think that's what he's saying here. I think abiding within the teaching of Christ means that we are allowing the doctrine of Christ to be the guiding principle of our lives. That we are striving to walk within his teaching. And so I think the principle that we would see here is that anyone who can look at a clear passage of Scripture and say, well, I understand that that's what God wants. I understand that that's what God says. But I think it's okay for me to do this is not in fellowship with God and therefore cannot be in fellowship with me. Um, When we abandon the doctrine of Christ as the guiding principle of our life, uh, then we cannot maintain fellowship um, with his people. But let's look at one last passage in 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 6. Here, this talks about our fellowship with God. It says, If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ's Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How do we maintain fellowship with God? When it says walk in the light, does that mean that we in every aspect of our lives, uh, you know, live perfectly, that, that we don't in any way violate God's will within our life, and, and then we're in fellowship with him? Well, certainly not. He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, uh, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. Clearly, we're not sinless. That's not what walking in the light means. Um, My brother-in-law, Marshall McDaniel, once said, walking in the light does not mean you're sinless. It means you sin less and less, and when you sin, you confess. (laughs) I thought that was a a helpful thing to remember here. If we're striving to walk in the light, I may be very immature. I may not understand what God's will is in this area or that area, Uh, but if I'm striving to walk in the light, if I'm striving to let the doctrine of Christ be the guiding principle of my life, By his grace, he is able to make me stand. I think that's really what Romans 14 is talking about. Um, That even though in my ignorance and my immaturity, I I may be wrong on something doctrinally. Uh, If I am willing to grow, if I'm willing to look to God's word, to let it be my authority, um, then we can work through those things together. We need to be very careful that we're not the type of people who, who raise a, a red flag at the drop of a hat uh, and that we're not seeking to, to divide with anybody and everybody who may have some different understanding of God's word than we do. We need to do those things that make for peace and for the building up of one another. 
We can't surrender the ideal. We need to continue to grow, to come to properly understand God's will. It's, it's, it's not an unimportant issue when it applies to whether something is pleasing or displeasing to God. But we need to have the patience and forbearance to work through those things together. I, I know this is not a comprehensive lesson. There's a lot of other things that we could talk about. I, I hope it's been helpful to you, though, as we consider how we deal with our differences. I think what the Bible shows us is that our initial reaction needs to be forbearance, needs to be working to maintain peace as we seek to help each other grow. Uh, And yet, if somebody has a divisive spirit, if somebody is doing damage to the faith of other Christians, if somebody is willful and rebelliously continuing in sin, I need to disfellowship that person. And when somebody is clearly not in fellowship with God based on the teaching of the scriptures, I cannot welcome them in as my brother whom God does not see as his child. In all other cases, I think the principles of Romans 14 apply. We, we don't just agree to disagree or disregard these matters as unimportant, but we are humble, we are patient, we are forbearing as we seek to help each other grow. How does this apply to you today? As you set down the mirror of God's word, what does it show you about yourself? Have you dealt with differences in the way that you should? Uh, Is there something that you need to change in your attitude towards your brethren? Maybe you recognize in some area today that you're not in fellowship with God. Um, And ultimately, while we have some responsibility to uh, uh, assess whether others are in fellowship with God, if they're going to be in fellowship with us. Ultimately, that's something between you and the Lord. That's something that we can't know for you. But maybe you recognize today that because of some sin in your life, because of some attitude in your life, you've not been walking in the light and you've been walking in darkness. Maybe you haven't committed your life to him, uh, haven't become his child. If there's anything that we can do to help you be in fellowship with God, uh, if there's anything that we can do to, to help you Uh, Make a change, be in a right relationship with him. That's exactly what we want to do today.